Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal-making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and uh, it's World Series Week. I'm in uh, Houston, Texas, as we're taping this. You're, you're back in New York getting ready to watch Game 1. I will be there uh, in person. You know, but uh, the World Series, far from the only thing going on right now. Absolutely, Eric, but I am jealous. I would like to be down there in Houston with you. It should be a great series. Uh, people in Philadelphia are very excited, so we'll see how this one plays out. Yeah, and I'll speak a little bit more to uh, the World Series and goings on around that a little bit later in the podcast. We've got a number of other things to unpack here. We're coming to the end of year one for Live Golf. Got a very interesting uh, business deal in the world of action sports. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, Chris's former life, fantasy sports here. Another interesting deal that's uh, emerged elsewhere in the industry. But first, we're going to have a conversation with EJ Johnston. He is the uh, founder and chief executive of a really interesting ice hockey startup called Three Ice. A lot of listeners on the podcast may be not familiar with Three Ace and what they're up to, but they've got a modified version of ice hockey that's really beginning to make some noise in the industry. We're going to unpack that. So stay tuned for that conversation. Chris and I will be back on the other side. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, E.J. Johnston, founder and chief executive of Three Ice, the startup North American Ice Hockey League featuring three skaters aside plus a goalie, debuted earlier this year looking to offer a faster, more dynamic version of the sport than the traditional version with five skaters aside. Backed in part by a domestic broadcast agreement with CBS Sports, the league made a prominent market entry following other modified versions of major sports to hit the market, such as Ice Cube's Big Three Basketball League and the World Lacrosse Sixes. More, most recently, the trajectory of Three Ice was boosted by a large-scale partnership with Legends in which the Premium Experiences Company will manage several key revenue lines for the league and take a minority equity position. Johnston, the son of former National Hockey League goaltender coach and general manager Ed Johnston, has re-entered the sports industry after a prior career as an executive producer in television, creating and writing multiple series for networks such as NBC and BET, and he notably sold and produced reality television programming in China. Johnson also previously held positions with Fox Sports, IMG, and Getty Images. EJ, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you, Eric. So let's start with the kind of original inspiration here. As I mentioned, there's been sort of this groundswell of modified versions of major sports elsewhere here but you you obviously were born into hockey you've sort of come through this and through a very traditional realm here what was that inspiration to say hey I, i've got a different idea for how this sport can be played and presented yeah you know it's kind of a perfect storm of my personal passions professional experience and what i think i saw in the media landscape grew up in a hockey family dad played in the nhl coach gm uh, bobby Orr's my godfather so i Grew up around hockey players my whole life and, and like to think some of that vibe rubbed off on me. And, uh, you know, as an experienced, you know, television executive, marketing guy, business development guy, sponsorship sales guy, I enjoyed that landscape and was able to sort of see where I thought that the marketplace was going and then got validation with successes of things like Big Three or Rugby Sevens or the Formula E, what I call more snackable leagues. And uh, I would probably put us uh, in the same 
genre as the Indian Premier League, the short form version of cricket. It's going on right now. It's called the T20 World Cup. And they've taken that four or five day format and condense it down to two hours. It's more cricket in less time. And that's what we are. We are, our tagline is the best part of hockey, but we have, you know, a great phrase by our commissioner, Craig Patrick. It's overtime all the time. We've packed in more hockey in less time. And that's really our model. So the success of these snackable leagues, the shifting media landscape to a phone first model over the last five to 10 years, and uh, my personal passions and professional backgrounds, kind of a perfect storm. Combined with that uh, light bulb moment of watching the three-on-three rookie camps about uh, five, six years ago and just seeing how electric it was and people cheering in Pittsburgh and the New Jersey Devils camps, these unknown guys, it was it was great stuff. So it all coalesced in that kind of uh, moment. So, EJ, I believe you just finished your first actual season. What can you share with the listeners regarding results, fan engagement, revenues, anything else from a business metric standpoint? How how successful was year one for you? Yeah, we just wrapped up in August. We had our championships in Vegas. We were on uh, big CBS. Uh, we're very excited about that. And for us, you know, we had to do three things really, really well in our first year. We had to have an excellent on-ice product. For us, for any business, really, it starts there. You have to have excellent product. So we did, did something that we thought was even better. Um, we, we thought we had a faster game, a more exciting game. So we were really pleased with ticking that box. Next, our broadcast. We had to nail that. And for us, we felt we could have uh, as good a broadcast as anyone in sports. I'll put our stuff against anybody in hockey in most sports. You know, we're not quite the Super Bowl yet, but we felt like we ticked that box. And then the third one was from a player standpoint, we wanted to make sure that this was the best experience that they ever had in hockey, period, no matter where they played. About a third of our players played in the NHL. Guys played in the KHL, Swedish League, Finnish League. Every league on the planet is represented. And uh, to a man, they said to me, either in writing or in person afterwards, EJ, this was the most fun experience I've ever had in the game. You treated us like pros because we got big league people all behind the scenes, great coaches, Hall of Fame coaches, and they can play their most creative, most exciting version of their games. They can express themselves in the most creative way. No one's trying to take their heads off if they do some sort of twirly, whirly lacrosse move. And uh, it's just fast, 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 go, 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 tic-tac-toe hockey. And, uh, And they loved it. So those are the three boxes that we had to tick. You mentioned being on big CBS as you start to ramp up for next season for year two, what are you thinking in terms of media distribution, both linear and digital? Yeah, we are back with CBS. We're excited about that partnership. Uh, they've been great to a CBS sports network for our regular season and big CBS for our championship. We were in 183, 184 countries last year with partners like ESPN, TSN, and uh, we're moving forward the same play. We should be in 180 some odd countries and broadcast uh, around the planet. So it's a big deal for our players. It's a big deal for our brand. And as our business grows, you know, the the goal is to have a global distribution part locked in long-term. And that is where we're, we're working towards. We're building value in our, in our brand, in our product, and our, the relationships with these partners. You have a number of NHL legends involved with your league. We'd be interested to hear how that has helped you. And maybe a follow-up to that, do you ultimately expect to have some kind of formal relationship with the NHL itself? Yeah, so on the on the player side, or I should say on the personnel side, our coaches are all Hall of Famers. So first and foremost, they're outstanding people. They've dedicated themselves to excellence and accomplishments. I think we had 23 Stanley Cups across uh, all of our coaches. They're great to be around. They know the game. Many of them have coached in the NHL or elsewhere. And uh, to rely on their expertise about the game, the on-ice product, managing players and personnel and not just on ice stuff, but they have ideas about how to market and PR and creativity. 
you know, a guy like Larry Murphy uh, is, you know, a broadcaster and he's got ideas uh, on that front as well. So we're really blessed to have all those guys with us. They had a lot, not only on the ice, but off the ice. So we're, we're flattered by all of them uh, being part of this. And as far as the NHL, look, I'll always be a five on five fan. I love uh, the NHL game. I've got good friends over there and uh, we have discussions with them all the time. We think we're additive, not competitive. And perhaps someday there might be something in the works to, to develop something together. But who knows? Today, we're, we're good friends and they're a $5 billion a year company and we're a startup. So as you continue <laughs> forward, what is your core target demographic? I'm assuming it is younger than a lot of the traditional stick and ball leagues in the NHL specifically. And then uh, as you do that, how are you keeping them engaged off season? Yeah, so we, we do skew slightly younger, which is great for us. And for us, we like to think that we're speaking to two or three different choirs and then maybe a, a group beyond that. So your hardcore hockey fan, your casual hockey fan, for sure, are the people we want to speak to. We want to be targeted there. But we also want the sports fan as well. So if you like sports in general, you know, this is the kind of thing that you'll turn it on and go, wow, uh, this is electric. I don't have to be a hockey fan. I don't have to know much about the coaches, the players, but you can just see just go, go, go action. So those are kind of our three core audiences uh, that we want to develop. You know, our season just ended in August, so we're kind of in the, the downtime for us publicly facing lots of stuff going on behind the scenes. And what we'll start to do in the next 30 to 60 days is start to rebrand and, and get out there with, you know, 2023 messaging. You know, we are planning on expanding from six teams to eight teams and uh, telling the world all about how that's going to work. So you'll start to see some stuff from us December, maybe, maybe January. And then we've got, you know, six to eight months to go before puck drop for 2023. EJ, you announced uh, a relationship this week with Legends Hospitality Capital Raise, as well as a strategic relationship. Why were they a good partner for you? And what are they going to be doing beyond providing the capital in terms of the overall relationship? Yeah, I mean, the, the capital is important, but for us, it's really about the relationship and uh, the things that they add. We, we think we're a rocket ship and we, uh, we believe that they're fuel in that tank uh, and they believe it as well. So it's nice validation for us on that front. They're bringing to the equation sales in no particular order, sales might, data and analytics might, and licensing and merchandising might. For a group like ours to have a group that believes in us with that muscle behind them uh, really adds a lot to our business model. It really is a, an accelerant. We've been talking for uh, many months, almost a year at this point, and uh, closed the deal about a month or so ago and officially announced it uh, just a few days ago. But we're very, really excited about it, and it's, it's just fuel in our tank. Similar question for other folks on your cap table, such as KV Partners. What are some of these other investors and perhaps other investors you may still be looking to add? What are some of the key attributes you either have or want to have? Yeah, you know, we're, we're looking for not just money, but smart money and people that care, people that want to build something. I'm a builder and uh, having people in my corner like KV Partners, particularly Keith Bank and his team and other folks on our cap table, they are believers in what we're doing. They are consultants uh, as well. Some people write checks, but at the higher level, uh, you get involvement from them. So advice, KB Partners has the largest sports tech fund uh, in the world, as far as uh, I know. And so they have a lot of relationships, expertise, advice, connections, people uh, that we can tap into. That's important. Um, you know, I know a lot of things about this business where I don't. I've hired the right people or I've partnered with the right people and investors can be part of those uh, partnerships. So it's really critical to have believers and, uh, and smart money, as they say. And we've got, uh, we've got both. 
in many ways, this has been a banner year for emerging sports leagues, certainly from the perspective of, of raising capital, PLL, PFL, Athletes Unlimited, uh, your property. Why do you think there has been so much excitement this year around emerging leagues where maybe in prior years there was some skepticism about them or you know, how are you going to break through? Why do you think now there's so much momentum for emerging leagues? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. If I can think out loud with you on that, Chris, I would say there was probably a little bit of a bottleneck because of lockdowns. You might have had groups that we want to launch you know, a year earlier, but we obviously had to pause and pump the brakes because of that. I think you've had a, a combination or confluence of many, very factors. You've got groups out there that have shown they can do it. To me, you know, again, a rugby sevens model is interesting. A Formula E is interesting. A big three is interesting. The Indian Premier League is 15 years old, so it's hard to call them new. But you've got the shifting media landscape. You've got some really proofs of really good proofs of concept. You've got the the bottleneck that I think lockdowns caused. But I think there's most importantly the ability to go direct to people through this. You know, I like to say we're a phone first media company in the shape of a hockey league. You know, that next generation of media allows you to go direct. And, you know, I quote Ricky Gervais sometimes, one of my favorite comedians, you know, if only a million people think he's funny, he's going to be a very successful guy. And, you know, you don't need, you know, two billion fans to have these more snackable leagues. If I'm an NFL uh, league and I've got 32 teams with 55 guys in the roster, you know, different story. The, the economics are very, very different. If you can have a more efficient, more compact, direct-to-consumer model, if you will, you don't need to have 10 billion people, you know, excuse me, 7 billion people around the planet following you. You can do it at a much more efficient level. So I think it's kind of a perfect storm of all of that. Hopefully it's a, I didn't drone on too much for you on that answer. Obviously just still a startup, but uh, as you look down the road uh, towards the future, what does a potential exit or next stage for Three Ice look like? Yeah, you know, for us, we want to make sure we're focused on the here and now, obviously, but we always like to begin with an end in mind and, and an exit is something that we've always talked about and thought about. I enjoy what we're doing now, but there are the usual suspects out there. The big meeting conglomerates are a big deal uh, for us. We think the big agencies that have acquired sports properties in the past, obviously the venture capital space. If you look at European football or English football, the Americans are coming over in droves. The Middle East is coming over in droves. They're buying these properties because they're good investments. You know, the valuations continue to go up. These sports teams and leagues and franchises are not just uh, live entertainment, not just media companies, but they are kind of an entertainment platform as well. So they're kind of a perfect storm of where the media landscape is going and what people are, are doing with their, their spare time and their, and their disposable income. So for us, the, the exit's a real thing that we think about all the time, but we've got, we've got several years before we get to that. As you think about global growth, EJ, you mentioned that your product is distributed via media to many countries around the world, but are you thinking about ultimately launching leagues in different countries or different territories, or how are you thinking about the strategy around global growth? Yeah, so expansion has always been in our plans. So we went from six teams to eight teams this year, and we are going to take a look at going to 16 teams, potentially across all of North America or a Canadian and American division. We might split that those new eight teams up. We'll see how that goes. But it's very conceivable we could do the exact same thing in Europe. So you could have theoretically a Three Ice America or USA, Three Ice Canada, Three Ice Europe, and then start to have kind of a Champions League, if you will. You could have an extra tour stop, if you will, where you bring in the top two competitors from each one of those divisions and play in that Champions League. 
We also love the idea of uh, our Little League World Series. Three Ice Kids is a no-brainer for us. The under-14s, both boys and girls, a made-for-TV event. You stick it in your Williamsport, Pennsylvania, wherever that happens to be for us. We're looking at a few locations now. That's about a year or two out for us. But those are the kinds of expansion opportunities that we're really taking a look at and uh, think are they're within our grasp. And we'll make sure that we crawl before we sprint on those. We'll make sure that they're financially viable before we do those. But we really think that's a really interesting play for us and adds a lot of excitement and gets a global footprint. Again, the model that I really enjoy is the Indian Premier League. You know, they've got an, a league in India. They've got a league in Sri Lanka, South Africa. They've now launched a Caribbean. They've got leagues all over the planet, and uh, they just continue to be a juggernaut, selling their media rights and, and generating excitement and sponsorships in every market they go into. It's pretty incredible. So that's kind of our, our model on a small scale. So clearly a lot happening in and around Three Ice. We're going to be continuing to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank EJ Johnston, their founder and chief executive, for spending this time with us. Eric, Chris, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank EJ Johnston again from Three Ice for uh, spending that time with us for that conversation. But turning our attention now to the news of the week here, we'll uh, start with a topic we talked a lot about on the uh, podcast, Live Golf. You know, this is arguably the story of the year across the global sports industry and all of the machinations and and impacts uh, that arrival has had. They're coming to the end of season one here. Uh, They're playing uh, their final event this weekend. It'll be done by the time the podcast here drops. That final event uh, down at Doral in Florida. I actually got one of my writers down there. He's been checking out the scene. And, you know, his experience has been sort of like mine when I went to the New Jersey event over the summer. It's been a very surreal thing. And I've been to a lot of events over my years in this business and, you know, really uh, unlike anything else I've seen, but really more broadly here, I think this is an opportunity to sort of take some stock and see where Liv is at and where they might go here. And so I guess I'll start opening up to you and your sense of where you see Liv's trajectory at this point. I think, Eric, it's it's a mixed bag. Certainly attracting great players has not been a challenge with Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kopka and Phil Mickelson. So yeah. I think on the player side, they lived it extremely well. Just no question about that. In terms of offering prize money and opportunities for players, again, extremely, extremely well. I think the you know the big challenge has been the media deal and and not really yeah. having a primary media deal or a primary linear television deal in the United States, especially. And whether that can get figured out in the offseason or not, I think is a big question mark. Also, I believe some of the controversy surrounding the year also impacted their ability to secure the kind of sponsors they had probably hoped for. They lost some executives along the way. So again, I you know, Live Golf is not going anywhere. I think it was a for them, they would view it as a successful first year, but there are still some major challenges ahead. Yeah, it's really interesting because they've taken such sort of a scorched earth mentality around so much of what's around them. You see a lot of new entities that come in and, you know, even the three ice that we just spoke with, there's plenty of folks who sort of come onto the scene. Hey, we just want to do our own thing. We've got our own lane. We've got a particular need or attribute that we want to address and showcase here. Live has got a bit of a different mentality that, it's very much sort of we're right, PGA is wrong. And then you also sort of look at 
how Live Golf has leaned so much into extreme right wing politics, they've sort of painted themselves into a corner a bit. And when you're trying to do a big television deal or attract sponsors or attract a mass audience, when you are by definition narrowing your own field, that, that's a tough equation. It is, Eric. And on the politics front, you know, a lot of the headlines coming out of yesterday, the initial day of, of Pro Am, were quotes from former President Trump and his views on Live and the PGA Tour. So that yep. certainly dominated that particular news cycle. But more broadly, this is a different kind of initiative in the sense that Live Golf is not trying to be a minor league or a secondary league. Uh, they are really going for it. And we haven't seen that very often in the sports world. I think we talked back to the days of maybe the USFL and right. the NFL in the 80s, where they were really going head to head competing for players. Obviously, that wound up in a big lawsuit and ultimately the USFL folding. But this is really, Liv is taking on the PGA you know, right where they live. And uh, as a result, you're, you're seeing a lot of friction and a lot of animosity on both sides. And the interesting thing is if you sort of take all of that drama that we're discussing and put it off to the side, competitively, structurally, how purses are done, there are actually some interesting ideas. And if you actually look at how Jay Monahan and the PGA Tour have responded in, in really dramatic and, and, you know, rushed, not rushed, but in, in you know, rapid fashion, they've really kind of got what they've done to change their schedule, what they've done to change the prize money. There are actually a lot of interesting ideas emerging forth out of Live Golf. It's Again, it's just become so wrapped up in all of this other drama. Yeah, the PGA has, uh, as you mentioned, increased prize uh, pools, even though initially Jay said, look, we can't compete on the money. They have they done sure a bit trying. Of, they have done a bit of that, but they also are launching uh, TGL, a new kind of team-based tech-infused league, primetime league with Tiger Woods and Rory yeah. and Mike McAlerley, uh, of sort of launching that in the beginning of 2024. They have done a deal with autograph for NFTs. So I think they are trying to be aggressive and be innovative and perhaps live really spurred some of that, even on the PGA Tour side. Yeah. And, and as this all sort of continues to uh, manifest itself and PGA Tour has got its own revised schedule for 2023, Live Golf will have a expanded schedule for 2023. There's still an antitrust lawsuit that's still winding its way through the courts in California. We've had a number of players, most notably Phil Mickelson, have dropped out of that. So it's really very much a kind of mono a mono, you know, live golf versus PGA tour thing. So this isn't just a marketplace competition. This is one actually in the courts. Yeah. These lawsuits, Eric, are likely in my view to continue for many years ahead. Oh, yeah. So I'm not sure there's going to be a definitive resolution anytime soon on those. What really could be interesting in 2023 is if live golf does secure uh, a major media partner and starts building its brand among consumers and starts getting more coverage across the sports industry, then I think that ramps up the competition even further. And, and that would be a challenge in, in some respects to the PGA Tour. But again, this is, you know, the way, as we were discussing, the way they've sort of narrowed their own universe a little bit, this is going to almost by definition have to be somebody that it doesn't have any sort of connection with the PGA Tour now. And that really limits the field of potential suitors. 
That's true, but I don't think that's necessarily all Live Golf's doing. In other words, I don't think the PGA Tour is particularly excited about having its existing partners oh, you know, televise televised Live Golf, regardless of Live's positions on on various issues. So it, it, but we are in a proliferated media environment with you know potentially many options. Again, maybe not so many options from a linear TV standpoint. But there are other non-traditional approaches to media exposure. And while I think Liv would probably prefer to have the, the traditional TV deal, it may be some combination of non-traditional outlets that gets them exposed. Well, much more to come on that front. Uh, again, uh, as we said at the outset, this you know really is on a very, very short list for the story of the year in the industry. And so we're just beginning on this one. But turning our attention from golf to action sports, you know, really interesting deal that came out this week. Uh, you know, the X Games, they've been around for more than a quarter century. This is an action sports competition that ESPN founded, has run. They did this back in the 90s to sort of help attract some new viewers that were not already ensconced in the traditional stick and ball sports and the like. Well, after many years and, uh, you know, a lot of speculation that we were heading in this direction, ESPN has done a deal where they have sold majority control of the X Games to MSP Sports Capital. This is a firm led by Jeff Morad, former owner of the San Diego Padres, John Najafi, vice chairman of the NBA's Phoenix Suns, who we've had here on the podcast. You know, really uh, impressive firm. They're going to be the majority owners now of the X Games. ESPN remains a minority shareholder, and they're going to have the linear TV rights in the United States as part of this new relationship. But this is one of these things that, you know, potentially could really set up to be a win-win where ESPN stays involved, but this now pro- this property now shifts to another entity that could perhaps give it a little bit more focus and unlock some new value. That is an important point, Eric. MSP has several assets in its portfolio. They have uh, ownership in an F1 team. They have a number of soccer franchises in Europe, but this will be an important part of the MSP portfolio. So I do think they're going to add innovation, new events, more streaming. They've hired new executives. So this is going to be a very important thing to MSP. Whereas for ESPN, you know, the X Games were still relatively small in the scope of, of that overall network and their focus on ESPN plus and so forth. So I think you're right. I, I do think there'll be some innovation that MSP adds, but ESPN will still benefit from, from some of the TV rights that they retain as well as a minority ownership position. Yeah, and it really also sort of signals an interesting approach for ESPN now in this sort of new realm. And Jimmy Patero has been there for a number of years now. And, you know, as Disney sort of works through some of its own machinations that, you know, there's been a long period of time where ESPN you know, sort of felt like they had to own everything and put its name on everything. And this sort of suggests uh, perhaps a, a, an openness to a different model that these kind of partnerships with third parties that's okay and can really work to actually provide additional value here. And you almost wonder as they start to think about what they ultimately want to do in sports betting and some of these other areas that, you know, ESPN doesn't have to have a complete ownership stake, you know, and, you know, have everything corner to corner necessarily. Yeah. Ownership also means responsibility. And when you're talking about an, an event, uh, oriented property like the X Games, the actual arms and legs and effort to stage that event, that's a lot of resources for a company like ESPN for a relatively small property. 
We see that at a bigger level with Fox and what they're doing with the USFL and really being in charge of managing these events. So when you talk about owning leagues, the networks have kind of gone back and forth about should they own the league, should they not? But but that ownership really comes with a burden. And I think in this, in this way, they're having their cake and eating it too. They're having someone else be responsible for managing the event and putting it all together. And they get the benefit of, of sort of the media value as part of their network. And again, you you bring in folks like Morad and Jaffe who have you know shown a lot of creativity in trying to look around corners elsewhere in their investment activities here. That this you know again theoretically opens a lot of latitude to do some things that may not have been as possible or possible as quickly under a traditional Disney corporate umbrella. And they also brought in a guy named Steve Flisher. I don't know him, uh, but he was CEO of Twitch. Who is now going to? I'm sorry. He was he was a senior executive at Twitch. He's now going to be the CEO of the X Games for Jom and and for Jeff Morad. And so I, it sounds like the streaming piece of this and reaching the next generation of fans and non traditional distribution, in addition to the linear piece that they have with ESPN, is going to be a big priority. So we'll see what that exactly looks like. But that seems to be the direction they're heading. Yeah, and and what that would you know sort of theoretically suggest is a lot of social based type of distribution and you know events on TikTok and these kinds of things that this is exactly the the audience that they're seeking. Yeah, and I think another kind of party in the mix, Tony Hawk is an investor. Yeah, uh, so he's got some obviously history uh, in in this space, and so I think the combination of this fresh energy with with again the still the the, the back support of ESPN could make this X Games really relevant again. Again, I'm not saying it, it hasn't been relevant, but when it started in the 90s, it was the hottest thing out there. Oh, yeah. I think there are other things that have maybe eclipsed it with younger audiences in recent you know, years. And now there's an opportunity to kind of reimagine it, which, which I think is important. And the Tony Hawk piece is critical because, you know, arguably no more revered figure in the world of skateboarding and action sports and so forth. And that, that lends a real authenticity that as you do a number of these new business initiatives and try different forms of content distribution and such, it's going to be important that, that you know, the sort of the, the core and the guts of the competition has to stay true and has to stay authentic and no better than Tony Hawk to make sure that leveler is in place. Yeah. And one of the things, and, and to that point, Eric, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, I didn't frankly realize until I did a little more homework on it, is that the some of the events in the X Games have ultimately become Olympic sports oh, or yeah. have been tested as Olympic sports. And so... The authenticity, as you mentioned, the credibility, the creating of these activities as real sports is really important. This isn't necessarily, you know, battle of the network stars from the 1970s. This is uh, these are real competitions and, and skilled athletes having, you know, albeit in some unusual types of uh, of events. Yeah, which just reminds me, I grew up watching the superstars and, you know, obviously it's a complete you know, impossibility in the world of injury prevention and CBAs and the like now, but boy, howdy, that would be a lot of fun to watch again. Yeah. And look, I think you mentioned TikTok. I, I think we are in a new world of media consumption now, especially for <clears throat> millennials. And, you know, the combination of TikTok plus X Games, I do think we'll see some things that would be hard to do, you know, under the ESPN banner standalone that now I think can come to fruition. So much more to come on that front. It's going to be very interesting to see how this property evolves and grows under the uh, MSP banner. Shifting our attention now to fantasy sports. This is something we don't necessarily talk about a ton, but 
you know, still a very large, vibrant and growing industry, uh, continues to post new record levels of activity, even amid the uh, ongoing legalization of sports betting in the United States. Had a very interesting development in this world uh, this week, and and one, Chrissy, you're obviously very familiar with, with your prior fantasy sports ventures business. We've got an entity... Um, called the 33rd team. This is a fantasy football focused media entity. They have brought in a couple of very uh, well-known and senior executives in the space veterans, uh, Tony Petiti and John Entz, both formerly of Major League Baseball. Uh, a lot of folks also know Tony Petiti from his time at Activision Blizzard. And then uh, even before his MLB spent, uh, stint with uh, CBS Sports, they've come on board in senior level roles and there are new investments from Liberty Media. This, of course, is the parent uh, group of the Atlanta Braves F1 and Sirius XM. Another uh, entity uh, from Massachusetts called the Ball Post Group has come in. So yeah, as you well know, Chris, from your, your time at FSV, scale is the name of the game in this business that, you know, fantasy sports has, you know, long been sort of a land of the giants here. And this is a move that seems to be heading in that direction. The The, the content part of the fantasy space is one where independent entities can thrive. And that's what we did with Fantasy Sports Ventures. We aggregated a whole bunch of niche sports sites providing fantasy content. Here, essentially what they've done is aggregated under one banner a number of ex-NFL coaches, executives, experts, and really provided premium kinds of fantasy content. And as you know, Eric, there's still more than 50 million people playing fantasy right. in the U.S. It isn't getting the same kind of headlines that the betting space is, but there is a big audience out there. And the question longer term. And they're fervent. The, and they're fervent. And now they've got with this particular business, you know, someone like Tony Petiti, who was at CBS, who was CEO of uh, MLB Network. Now they've got real media experts in the mix, along with great coaches and analysts. And so I, I do think there's a lot of upside here. Now, whether this ultimately serves the betting space longer term as the audience that they aggregate ultimately gets monetized through relationships with betting companies, et cetera, we'll see. But I do think it's an interesting approach and, and has a lot of potential. Yeah. And, and, and to your point before about the content that it seems like really sort of the part of the secret sauce here or not so secret sauce is having a lot of these former players and coaches really providing that, you know, sort of premium level analysis and having folks who actually played the game and coached the game and been involved in the game to be able to sort of help fantasy players set their teams and make roster decisions and such, as opposed to, you know, other media folks and lay people who don't have that same sort of prior immersion in the game. Yeah. The, the expertise is important. They also have high profile names like Bill Parcells, Bill Cower, and others who, again, not only have the expertise, but our fan favorites in many ways. Back in, in the days when I had my fantasy startup, we had some special programs with people like Bob Knight and Billy Packer around yeah. March Madness. There are there are definitely other players and, and, and ex-coaches, but these guys have really aggregated a whole cadre of them and put them in one place. And I do think that gives them a leg up on some of the other properties out there. But of course, this you know, also raises a question as to what the long-term, uh, you know, play here is. This is essentially something that's going to be flipped and, you know, rolled into some larger entity, you know, because your point is well taken that, you know, there is a lot of room uh, and runway for independence out there in the space, but, you know, big brands are still big brands and, you know, they like to grow too. Yeah. Well, we saw, you know, more specifically in the betting space, 
the Action Network, which uh, launched a few years ago, led by the Chernin Group, ended up yep. getting acquired for a lot of money by a better collective. We've seen Chris Collinsworth's company, Pro Football Focus, took a major investment about a year ago from Silver Lake in a partial exit. We saw Pro Football Talk, which is not so much a fantasy property, but more of an NFL news and information that ended up being partnered with NBC. So there are history here of football related media properties that find, you know, either exits or major investors. And and I expect these guys will have some good success if they can scale the audience. Well, and and again, it certainly speaks to the ongoing power of almighty football that, uh, you know, this is something you couldn't necessarily put together with a lot of other sports. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Eric. And again, having Liberty come in where, you know, they, they own the Braves, they own F1, Sirius, they're, they're obviously a, the bluest of blue chip. And then Baupost, a, a, a Boston-based uh, financial firm, their chairman or their, their lead investor, Seth Klarman, is big in the horse racing space. They like, obviously, what's going on here with fantasy related to sports betting. So, again, they've got a lot of really great ingredients now, and they're going to now have to produce you know, financial results and continued growth and audience, but I do think they have a bright future. So much more to come on that, but, uh, you know, really interesting to see continued movement in that fantasy space. But as we come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we'd like to take a look elsewhere in the space and see what else is catching our eye. And Chris, I will start with you. Well, Eric, yesterday, uh, Elon Musk, I believe, officially took over as the owner of Twitter I think this is you know meaningful on a lot of different levels, but as it relates to the sports space, I'm really going to be interested to see how Elon's ownership affects Twitter's place as an important uh, exchange or, or or marketplace of ideas, as an influential place for discussion around sports or even the intersection of sports and politics. Think about the Daryl Morey tweet a couple of years ago yep. about Hong Kong and the import that had in the NBA. So does Elon's ownership change people's willingness or interest in using Twitter as that marketplace of ideas? Does that change? And then maybe secondarily, is there a different approach to sports league relationships that an Elon ownership brings? As you remember, six or seven years ago, Twitter bought NFL Thursday night rights, I believe at the time, for $10 million. They have since sort of stepped away from that. Amazon came in but will there be other kinds of relationships that get spurred? So a lot really to watch in terms of Twitter and sports, even though that may not be Elon's you know, main focus. Oh, you raise a fantastic point here because Twitter really sort of uh, disproportionately skews in the sports direction. Obviously, there's a lot of other topics on there, but you think about what they've done to funnel top tier sports content. They just did a deal with Major League Baseball to have look in rights for every game in this ongoing postseason. Just renewed their deal with the NBA. And number this is one of the critical fan engagement tools out there. And Twitter under its prior regime really leaned into that. And there were, you know, executives would come and go, but there was an overall thesis that having official relationships with rights holders is a really important thing. And you you raise a fantastic question because whether or not Elon Musk feels the same way, we don't know yet. 
We, we don't. However, he was on the board, I guess, for about a year of Endeavor as they were going public. So yeah. he's had some exposure and some involvement. But again, you know, he, he has not been somebody who's typically mentioned as someone who's going to buy a sports team or who has spent a lot of time looking in that area. So, again, a little bit of a question mark in terms of how he's going to view the sports world. Much more to come on that one for sure. From my standpoint, I'm, you know, I'm in Houston for the World Series. I'll be heading to Philadelphia for the later games. Really fascinating matchup. This was not the Yankee Dodger tilt that a lot of people, certainly Fox Sports, wanted, but and this may not play nationally super great, but Locally, it's a very interesting story that you've got Houston on one side that's really become a modern-day dynasty, four World Series in six years, six straight ALCS uh, appearances. You know, there was the whole situation with the electronic sign stealing, but the roster is mostly turned over. You've only got five players left from that 2017 team where that scandal emerged. They've continued to be really, really good. And you've got a business operation that's matched up with what's happened on the field. Philadelphia, conversely, a decade ago, they were one of the shining stars of the league. They had a National League sellout record at one point, you know, going to the playoffs with regularity, you know, big fan passion. The team slipped off and with it attendance and so forth. And now under uh, owner John Middleton, they've come roaring back and uh, could be poised to be, again, one of the shining stars of the league. Yeah, th- this should be a good matchup on the field, Eric, whether it draws the same kind of numbers is uh, you know, probably a tougher putt from, uh, from a rating standpoint. But yeah. the other thing I'm watching related to all of this, living, of course, in the New York market, is how does this World Series affect the teams that didn't make it? So the Yankees are, you know, what are they going to do with Aaron Judge? What uh, right. what are they going to do with the manager? There are other teams, obviously, that were eliminated along the way. So there's a lot of decisions that other teams need to make based on, again, the Astros' dominance and the Phillies kind of coming into the mix this year. So that will be interesting to watch as well. Under the guise with new money coming in, because 2023 will be the first year of MLB jersey patches, we've had one announced deal already with the Padres and Motorola, but these are going to be eight-figure annual deals. And that in and of itself, that has very significant payroll implications and was the kind of thing that was helping to govern a lot of last off season's labor talks. So a lot of new money coming in and a lot of big decisions to be made. Absolutely. Always good for the players to see that new money coming in. And uh, again, always affects the competitive dynamic as we uh, go into the off season. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for listening. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. 